Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Is it Pollen Sunday? Pollen was here before the fall, but I promise what it does to human beings is a result of the fall. <laughs> it's a curse. I, I believe we can live above that. I really do. Um, I say that as someone whose nose is itching right now and whose eyes have been watering all morning. But here's the thing. I don't base what I believe to be true on my experience or on what I personally have seen because then I serve a God that I've created that's based on my understanding. And, and I think that we have to be really careful that we don't do that. I think in life, like, we have to be really careful that we don't create a God who's based on an image that we've created, and then our ability to worship him depends on his ability to be the God that we've created. And if he's not the God that we created, then suddenly our ability to worship him stops, uh, because that God isn't really God He's our own understanding. It's kind of what Palm Sunday always reminds me of when I... Um, we, don't, we don't typically follow like a calendar here with preaching, but pretty much on Easter and Christmas you're going to hear what you hear every other Sunday, <laughs> which is the gospel. But, but this, I read this story of Palm Sunday every you know now and then as I'm reading through the gospels and this time of year, I always read it um, specifically, and it always reminds me of this, of, of the importance of knowing Him for ourselves, of actually knowing Him, like having relationship with Him that's based not on what someone's told us or even something that we've read alone, but based on revelation from the Father that we've gained through relationship with Him. Because anything other than that is subject to change. Open your Bibles up to, to Matthew um, chapter 21. It's so familiar, this, this passage. Um, but I, I love when I read something that's so familiar and I see just the line that sticks out. And you go, I never saw that before. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. God, thank you for, for your word. I thank you for this day that we, we remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem in the beginning of, 
of the, the week that changed everything. The week that you prophesied in the garden that you saw before you laid the foundation of the earth. I just thank you for that. I thank you for what that means for us today. I thank you for what was made available to us by the obedience and the suffering and the death of Jesus. His resurrection. I thank you for the transformation of our lives that took place in that moment. I just ask that today as we as we read and speak from your word and as we open our hearts to receive what you have for us, God, that the things would be settled within us, God. Not because of what I've read or because of what I've said, but because of revelation that comes straight from your spirit that changes and transforms us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus sends his disciples out, and he says, go to this city, you're going to see this, and when you do, grab them, bring them, and if anyone says anything to them, just say, to you, just say, the master has need of them. And so the disciples go and do what Jesus said, and of course, exactly what Jesus said would be there was there. If Jesus ever tells you to go somewhere because something is waiting there for you, you can trust that when you get there, what he said would be waiting will be waiting. You can also trust that there may be people who have something to say about it. Because people always have something to say. I mean, to be fair, it was probably their donkeys. <laughs> I might have something to say too. But you have to trust the word that he gave you more than what people say. And you have to do what he's called you to do, even if people say something. And so they go and they find it bring it and lay their coats down on the on the donkey and you know people have speculated a lot about why they laid their coats on the donkey some said it was just to make it more comfortable probably was partially that but part of that was just kind of saying like this is all that I am when they would exchange robes it was saying who I am I give to you and and who you are I take from me Jonathan and David exchange robes and suddenly David walks in the place of Jonathan and so part of that is them saying, like, I lay down everything that I am for you. And so Jesus sits on those, and he enters in, and as he's coming, people, I mean, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. People were starting to know who he was. People were starting to get really excited because prophecies are starting to line up. Things were starting to happen that had been foretold for generation to generation to generation through the scriptures. And, and so everybody's kind of has this expectation. And it's the perfect setting because it's the city of Jerusalem. It's the week of Passover. It's the time when they're remembering God sparing them and bringing them out of Egypt and all that he did there. It's like, if you could handwrite the script, this is it. It's the time when they're, that, that, that historians say there probably would have been millions of Jews in Jerusalem at this time. Like literally every inch of the city is just buzzing with people and they're there for Passover, but there's also this expectation because there's stories that are circulating and, and a man was raised from the dead and you can't keep that quiet. 
Like, you can't keep it quiet when a man who was dead for four days gets raised out of a tomb. It probably shouldn't keep it quiet. The fact is, is every one of us was dead in a tomb when Jesus called our name. We probably should let people know that. You probably have a story to tell. And so Jesus is coming and, and everybody's excited. And, and so people start laying their coats down for just even for the donkey. They're just saying, we'll lay down everything for you. And they're cutting these palm branches and, and the excitement is growing. And as a crowd grows, the crowd grows, right? Because when you see a bunch of people crowding and shouting, everybody comes to see what the crowd is shouting about. But there's a bunch of people that still don't know who he is. And, and, and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they're, 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 they're praising and they're worshiping and they're thanking God and they're saying, we'll lay down our lives and because Jesus has come and he's going to do everything that they want him to do. And they have this idea of what it looks like for God to come and rescue them. And a, a, a king riding in on an animal at the time that they're remembering God rescuing them, fits the picture pretty well. And they're probably a little bit emboldened because there's so many of them that if ever there was a time where overthrow was possible, it's now when we're all here together, when there's this huge mass of people and everybody's united in one mind and one purpose and and now is the perfect time. And, And even if you didn't come there thinking that, you suddenly get swept up into this excitement and this idea that the Messiah is coming and that that we're finally gonna be rescued and everybody is excited, but the problem is, is they still don't know who he is. Even the ones that know who he is don't know who he is. I read this and I thought, I get it. Because it says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. I had someone tell me recently, I got so excited when you were preaching the other day, I wanted to run a lap. (laughs) Sometimes kids don't know they're not supposed to do things. You know, you're born with this innate excitement inside of you, like no one has to teach you to be excited and dance when you're happy. You realize you've never had to take a kid and say you should jump up and down and be excited when something happens that you're happy about. When did we get so cool? (laughs) No, like who taught you? that that wasn't okay. I bet your parents never came to you and said, you know, you shouldn't get so excited when you're happy. You know, jumping and spinning. But, but maybe, yeah, I know, there's probably some that did. But, but for the majority of people, I got to speak to the 99, not the one. <laughs> for the majority of people, parents probably didn't tell a three-year-old, stop doing that. But at some point, Somebody looked at you funny. An older kid didn't jump and spin the way you did, and their look let you know that what you were doing wasn't okay. And suddenly you realized, like in life, I have to look around and see if people think it's okay before I do the thing that's in my heart. Don't let that happen. 
Don't let that happen to you. Don't, don't get so cool that you don't do the things that you really want to do because you're worried that people around you might look at you funny. It's okay. I, I get that there's, you know, there's social graces and there's times where things are acceptable and unacceptable, you know. I, I get that. You know, we live in a society and we're civilized. But I am saying, like, if at some point that, that child inside of you that was born that knew, like, jumping around and spinning like a top and shouting and being happy was okay, like, that should probably come out sometime. I, I've, heard people, I've heard people say, you know, well, I'll be like David, and when the Spirit of the Lord moves within, you know, upon my heart, then I'll, I'll do that. Like, the Spirit of God moved on your heart a long time ago. Permission was granted to dance like David danced. You're born again. The Spirit of God moved on your heart. At some point, that should probably express itself. You know, there's a, there's a verse in Psalms that says, let all the earth fear before the Lord. Let them tremble before him. It says, that word tremble there, actually, where it says fear in some things, that actually is a, is a Hebrew word, and I can't remember the, the exact word, but it has two definitions. One of them is to tremble with great terror, and the other is to spin with joy and dance around. You know, when you stand before God, probably one of the two should happen. You should either stand there in your own righteousness, not born again, see him for who he is and tremble with great terror. Or if you're born again, then you realize that you stand before a loving father who sees you covered in the blood of his son. You should probably joyfully spin around and and celebrate. That's actually a command. There's actually places in the Bible that say, where it says, exalt before the Lord, all the earth. It's actually commanded to us to make a joyful, physical expression of worship before the Lord. I know, that's in the Old Testament. So is thou shalt not kill. But Jesus thought that was worth doing in the new too. Why do we pick and choose the ones that make us comfortable to drag into the new? There's things that were supposed to make it beyond the cross. There's things that weren't. Guilt and shame were supposed to stay on that side of the cross. I promise you, worshiping and dancing and being joyful before the Lord, we're supposed to make it to this side of the cross. Why? Because all of heaven does it when even one enters into the kingdom. So if they're still doing it, maybe we should too. I'm just saying that like, At some point, you learn not to do those things. Maybe you should unlearn that. Maybe you should realize that like some of the things that you were created with a desire for were actually things that God wanted you to have a desire for. Well, you were created with a desire for him. All right. (laughs) (laughs) so there people are wondering who he is and they they ask people who is he you know it's really important when people ask you who jesus is that you actually tell them the truth of who he is because there's a bunch of answers that you could give there's one answer that actually leads to eternal life 
And so Jesus is, is, is coming into, the, into town. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. Remember, he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And you know who most men said that Jesus was? A prophet. Some say you're this prophet. Some say you're that prophet. Some say a prophet. They don't know exactly who you are. They just know that you're a prophet. And you know the truth of the matter is, is they were partially correct in calling him a prophet because he was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of the Father. The words I speak are not my own. So whose are they? The Father's. What does a prophet do? They speak on behalf of the Father. So he was a prophet, but more than a prophet. See, anytime Jesus is just part of who he is to us, and not all of who he wants to be, there's a part of us that will actually have this line that says, if Jesus doesn't do this, then I don't believe he's that. And this is the problem with that, that all the people faced on this day, is they haven't come to the place of saying, he's the Christ the son of the living God. They haven't come to a place of saying, he's the one who deserves my life and whom I will lay my life down for and I'll follow him no matter what. There's nowhere else that I could go. He has the words of eternal life. They haven't come to that place yet. So he's just a prophet at this point. He's not yet the Christ. Why? Because they're waiting to see if he will do the things that they think the Christ has to do before they will say that he is who he is. And so they have this idea of what it looks like for him to be the Christ, and they've built this case in their head, head of what he should do and what it looks like for the Messiah to come and what it looks like to be rescued. And so now they've created a God in an image of their own understanding, and they now have a God that can be who they want him to be. But if he's not, they reserve the right to say, I guess he's not the one. John the Baptist did this. And he even knew Jesus was the one. Like, be careful that even in your knowing that he's the Christ, you don't make these constructs of what the Christ has to do in order for him to stay the Christ. Because John the Baptist says, this is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows who Jesus is, but yet when he's sitting in prison, disappointed, and Jesus isn't doing the things that he thought he was going to do, he sends his disciples and says, go ask him if he's even the one, or should I look for another one? Why? Because he had an expectation that Jesus wasn't meeting at the moment, and that caused him to question if he actually was who he thought he was. And so the, the people have this idea, and, and, and they, they line the, the place with their coats, and they, line it with, they, they stand there with palms, and they're praising. You can be where everybody's at. You can be saying the right things. You can be doing the right things. You can have an idea that's partially correct, but if he hasn't become the Christ to you, then at some point you'll be disappointed when he doesn't meet your criteria and you'll be tempted to turn your back or even worse, allow yourself the position of judgment over him because he doesn't meet your idea of what Jesus should look like. We create these things. Have you ever, if you ever hear this come out of your mouth, well, if God can't, then I won't. Or if God didn't, then how could I? And we have these ideas. And that's just a dead giveaway that we haven't truly settled in our heart 
that he really is God and that he is worth following even if what he does or what he doesn't do leaves me feeling a little bit disappointed. Come on, everybody here has been disappointed at some point in their life. You know, it's okay even to have expectations. I've heard people preach that with, don't have any expectations. They don't ever be disappointed. How can you have faith apart from expectation? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. That means there's an expectation that I have, and that's what causes me to have faith is because I believe something that I haven't yet seen, so I do have an expectation. Even with people, it's okay to have expectations of people. The problem arises is when we allow people's lack of meeting our expectation to be the litmus test for whether we will be who we're supposed to be to them. Because I'm called to love you whether you ever meet my expectations or not. I have a ton of expectations because of the promises that Patty and I have made to each other. But there's not one of those that she could violate that gives me permission to not keep my promise to her. I don't know why I keep going to marriage, but I think it's, it's the Lord, right? But when I do marriage counseling with people, I'm not really a counselor, but I know the word of God. And so I can say, well, this is what the word says. I can listen to what people say, and I can just point them to the answer found in scripture. It's the kind of counsel that I give. And I usually ask them to tell me what their vows were. And most people's vows are something along these lines of, I'll give myself to you, all that I am, all that I have, for better or for worse, sickness, health, rich or poor, and the end of this line, till death do us part. And I'm looking at two people that are living, and I'll generally tell them at some point, you realize that in just being here alive, they've met every condition necessary for you to do what you said you would do on your wedding day. Well, yeah, but she, you just don't, no, you don't understand. I'm not saying that everything that she's doing is okay, that everything that he's doing is okay. I'm saying that for you to let them not being okay be permission for you to not keep your promises is completely invalid. Because you promised God that you were going to do all those things as long as you were both alive. And I'm looking at two people that are both alive. Conditions have been met. So love. See that we we should understand these things before we get married. Someone should talk to us about how serious a covenant marriage is, and, and someone should explain what we're gonna what we mean when we take these vows and when we say these vows to each other, because we're standing before God and asking him to come and do what only he can do, which is to take two and make them one. You understand, only God can take one and make it two. Which is what happens when two become one and a life is created and then suddenly one becomes two and then one gives birth and the cord is cut. And that one is now a separate one. Only God can take that one and join it together with another one and make two one again. 
you can, you can have a tax status, you can have a social standing, you can have a box that you check when you file your taxes that you're married. You can do all of those things without having the covenant and the creation of one flesh by the Spirit of God. But you can't have two become one apart from His Spirit joining the two together. That's a big deal. It's not something to be taken lightly. And... and if I marry you, and if a pastor marries you biblically, there shouldn't be any conditions allowed in that covenant ceremony except for this one, as long as we both shall live. So if you have two people who claim to follow Jesus and are born again sitting in front of you, all the conditions have been met. There's no excuse to not love each other. It's just the truth. They come to Jesus. They're trying to trap him like they always do. And they say to him, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? You realize that's the original question they ask. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus answers them and says, no. For have you not heard that from the beginning he created them male and female? And he said, for this reason shall a man leave his mother and father and be joined together with his wife and the two shall become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. He's done talking. At that point, so then they try to trap him and get him to contradict Moses because that was always their goal, so that they could call him a blasphemer. And they say, "Well, then, why did Moses?" Because of the hardness of your hearts. And I tell you, who's you? Not me, not us. Not us who claim to be born again, who have had our heart of stone taken from us and a heart of flesh given to us and his law written upon our heart and our heart to know him. Not us. And I say to you, the, the, who, who is you? The people with the hard hearts that he's talking to that are trying to trap him. That if you divorce your wife for any reason other than fornication, you commit adultery. It's wrong. You can't do it. And we have taking an answer that he gave to a generation in response to them trying to trap him with the law of Moses and dragged that into our new covenant life and made that Jesus giving permission for divorce. Instead of taking his first answer, which was this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? No. Now, does the Bible make provision for if an unbelieving spouse leaves or refuses to, to stay married and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. But let's just make sure that we're not trying to drag a law that was for people with hard hearts into our new covenant relationships and make it our excuse. Because there is a line in the Word that says that if you wish to live by the law, then you're required to fill every bit of it. So if we stand on that verse... 
to allow something. And this is what, I, I, honestly, I have this, this worry in me that we're allowing the Word of God to be so changed, and we're not just living by what the Word says. We're not living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. We're living by something other than that, and we're using rational arguments, and we're using our feelings and emotions and all these things, and we're saying, well, yeah, but what about this case, and what about that case? Look, here's what I'm saying is, if you can find in the Word where it says that if an unbelieving spouse refuses to stay married, that's fine. The, the, The person is free for how do they know if that person will ever return? I get that. That's completely okay. But if you have two people who claim to be following Jesus or you even have a spouse who would say that there is no God, but they agree to stay married, it says that if you stay, that they would be sanctified and your children also. I'm not saying that casually or flippantly. I I know that's not an easy thing in a lot of cases, but I am saying that at some point we have to settle just like at some point the people this time had to settle. Is he really who he says he is? Or is he who we say he is, and he's subject to change based on what we believe and what we think? And so this is the problem, and this is what allows them to ever get to this place. Think about this. They know, they, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They lay their coats down. They're all excited, just like you guys were when you came in the room this morning. And then suddenly someone says something that challenges who we are, challenges what we believe, or is kind of hard to accept, and suddenly we're not quite as excited anymore. That happens. I can feel it in the room when I talk like that. I can't get away from it, though, because then I'm using my words and not his, and I have to be obedient to speak what he's telling me and what I see in his word. I have to, even though sometimes I can feel what happens when you do that. This isn't like, like, trust me, I wrestle with these things. I, I come from a, a father who was divorced. It's not like I, this is something that like, doesn't have any impact on me or anything like that. Listen, if you did something prior to knowledge out of ignorance, there's forgiveness for it and there's redemption and all that. Don't take condemnation. But what I am saying is if you're looking forward trying to make a decision, make sure that you're not making a decision based on what you want at the expense of what he said. Make sure that you're finding what he said and living by that. No matter how many books or how many people would come to your defense and tell you, yeah, but what about this? Because that's happened for so long that the word of God has become whittled down to where it's barely applicable to anything anymore because we say, well, yeah, well, what about? As if, as if Jesus didn't understand that someday people would be in the position that people are in today. I actually had someone tell me one time, I think I mentioned this, I had someone tell me, and it's appropriate to talk about it right now because we're about to talk about it in a second, but I had someone tell me one time, yeah, but Jesus was never married, so he wouldn't understand. He stood on a stage and watched his bride choose another man right in front of him. And their choosing of another man meant he died. Your spouse may have chose somebody else, but it didn't cost you your life. Don't tell me he doesn't understand. And he still loves them. You realize when he said an adulterous generation, this is what he's talking about. And yet he immediately after seeing the happen. See, at that point, we are at the place where we give ourselves permission to not follow through with the hard things that God calls us to do. 
at that point, because we have just seen our spouse choose another in front of our faces, we give ourselves permission to not do the hard things that God's called us to do because of what we just witnessed, because of what they just did, and they are our reason for not being okay rather than the reason that we should all the more follow Jesus and do what he's called us to do. At that moment, every person has all the sympathy in the world when your husband or when your wife in front of you chooses somebody else. That's all the permission you need to not love them, to not be Christ-like, to not follow through on the promises that you've made. And yet Jesus doesn't give himself one second of permission to do anything other than what he's called to do in the face of that. It's at that moment that he lets himself be beaten. It's at that moment that he allows them, them to put crown, a crown of thorn on his head. It's at that moment that he allows them to pluck his beard out, to punch him and say, oh, you're a prophet? Tell us who hit you. Like, with that image being, like, the last thing that he's seen these people do is adulterously choose another man when he's standing in front of them, and it's in that time that he allows them to do the worst things ever done to a human being. We don't understand love. Not the way that, we, that he wants us to and not the way that we could. Because most of us at that time have a book for someone to read about why it's okay to not do what God's called them to do. And with good, kind, sincere hearts that really love the person and care about the person we give them comfort at the expense of truth. Matthew chapter 27. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? We're the bride of Christ. He, we are the people that he came for, the very people he came for, God's chosen people, and he's standing in front of them, and he says, which of these two men do you want to have, and which one shall I keep? They say, we want Barabbas. We choose another man. Well, what then shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Like it's not enough that his bride commits adultery in front of him and chooses another. Now he has to listen to them to say, we want him to die. There's probably a lot of books that would, that would give Jesus counsel that he had every right to not follow through at that point. There's probably a lot of people that would come to Jesus' defense at that point and say, you know, look, I get it. Like, you, you know, you, you came for them. You came to die for them. And, you know, I, I, I wanted them to change as much as you did. I mean, and, and, and I really thought they were going to change. I mean, 
Just a few days ago, they were shouting Hosanna. Just a few days ago, they were doing... In other words, they used to be who, someone that was worth dying for. They used to be someone that was worth giving your life for. They used to be, but now clearly they're not. And you'd be okay and justified to not follow through on what God's called you to because look at the way that they're treating you. You know why none of the disciples came and tried to talk Jesus out of it? I think. I think there was something in his eyes when he looked at people and told them what he was going to do that they realized, here's a person of conviction and integrity that will do what he said he was going to do, and there's no chance that you're going to talk them out of it because he believes he's heard the Father. I bet every one of us are called to live that way. Or when we stand in front of people and we tell them, this is what God has asked of me and this is what I'm going to do, there's something in our eyes when they look at us that they say, this is a man, this is a woman of conviction and there's no sense in trying to talk them out of it because they believe they've heard the Father and their will is to do His will. So I just wanted to kind of I wanted to talk about that a little bit. We've got a few minutes left. In, in a few short days, they went from Hosanna to crucify him. They went from he's a prophet to he deserves to die. What changed? It wasn't Jesus. What changed was that their expectation wasn't met. And they would rather serve their expectation than Jesus. Because their expectation and the image of God that they created was God and not him. C.S. Lewis said, God created man in his image and then man returned the favor. They had an idea of God that they served and that they loved and that they could worship. All of us do. Here's the problem, is that their idea of God was based only on what they had read or what other people had told them. It wasn't actually based on relationship with him. He told them this could happen earlier in his ministry, when he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, in vain you do search the scriptures, and for in them you think you find eternal life, but these are they that point to me. Like, I love that we love the word, but if it doesn't lead us to a place of actually knowing him so that we can receive revelation from the Father, all we have is knowledge. And when our knowledge gets conflicted, what will we choose? How will you actually follow Jesus if you don't know him, if you just have an idea of him and that idea gets shattered? What if, if all you know of him is what other people have told you? What if what other people tell you changes? Because here's the thing. Listen, listen to this. It says this. It says, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. Who do you think were the people that were easy for them to persuade to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death? It wasn't the disciples. 
It wasn't the ones who actually had firsthand revelation from the Father of who he was and had settled in their hearts that he was the Christ. See, long before this conversation happens, long before this event happens, he looks at Peter and he says, or the disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're this, some say you're that, some say you're a prophet, some say this. But who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood. For man didn't tell you this. You don't believe what you believe just because of what somebody told you. My father who's in heaven revealed this to you. I promise you when the chiefs and, uh, uh, and the elders and, the, and, the, and the, the Pharisees and the priests went around trying to convince people to ask for Barabbas to get set free and Jesus to be killed, they weren't changing his disciples' mind. Why? Because the disciples' mind wasn't made up just by what somebody else had said. They actually had revelation from the Father and had settled in their heart that he was who he said he was. It was the people, I believe, that when Jesus was coming, said, who is this? And their opinion of who Jesus was was determined by what people told them. So now it's as easy as a person telling them another thing. When you be careful, you don't believe what you believe just because it's what somebody told you. Be careful that you don't believe what you believe just because you read it. Because information apart from actual revelation from the Spirit of God doesn't transform us. There's people that can quote the Bible a whole lot better than you that don't believe there's a God. Because they've studied the Scriptures, but they never let the Scriptures study them. They've never let the Scriptures search their heart. They've never actually realized that these scriptures are supposed to point to him. And, and so when that happens, there's a few things, and I'll, I'll, I'll just close up with these, but there's a few things. One of them is, is, is when we face disappointment and when God coming doesn't look like what we thought it would look like for God to come is to understand that, that maybe our understanding was wrong. It's to be humble and admit that, you know what, maybe, I, maybe what I thought I knew I didn't know. Maybe I don't completely understand. It's to allow him to be God rather than our opinion to be God. It, it's to say, like, it, maybe my understanding was wrong. Maybe there's something I don't understand. And to be okay saying, I don't know. When people say, well, if God, then how come? The answer to that question is sometimes is, I'm not sure. But I'm not going to let your desire for an answer force me to speak when he hasn't. It's okay to just say, I'm not sure. I don't understand. This is what I thought. But I guess I didn't have full understanding on that. That's okay. Because the worst thing you can do in that situation is allow what these people allowed to happen, and that was for them to become the judges of God. You realize people valued their understanding, their opinion, and their theology so highly that when Jesus Christ didn't meet their theology, they allowed themselves to be put in the position of judging him. I think another thing is to... And this is the thing that some of us have to fall back on is to realize that maybe, maybe what he's doing is better than we knew. 
See, they wanted a king that would come and set them free in a physical sense and an earthly man to sit on a throne. The problem with that is they'd had that before. It hadn't worked out so well because the ability for the people to stay free was only as good as the king's ability to be perfect. They were only as free as the king's ability to stay perfect. They, they, they weren't actually set free. And God is trying to send a way that they can actually be set free that's not based on a man's ability to get it right. It's based on God's ability to get it right. And they would actually be truly free forever. They don't understand that what they want is so insignificant compared to what he wants to give. They're unwilling to let go of their understanding to receive something greater than what they could understand. Hold on to things loosely. There's some things you can hold on to really tight. He is the Son of God sent by the Father out of his love. He is the only way to the Father that his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection open the way for us to become new creations in Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, sons and daughters of the living God. And he's the only way. There's some things to hold on to really tight, but there's some understanding stuff out there that we need to hold on to loose enough that if our understanding isn't correct, we can actually allow him to give us something better than what we understood. Because sometimes what he wants is so much greater than what we expect. And we're so busy being hurt by not getting what we want that we don't even realize that something better is waiting for us. Because we camp out in the land of disappointment rather than keep walking through the valley of the shadow of death, believing on the other side there's something better. And, and the last thing, and, and I have a few of these situations in my life, for all the situations where, where you just, there is no understanding and there's nothing that you can do to make sense of it, for every Friday, realize there's a Sunday coming. For every time that it looks like the enemy won and it looks like something died and it looks like the end. For every situation that, that looks like there's no way that it can be redeemed, it looks like there's no way that good could come from it, it looks like just a complete zero, a complete and total loss for every single Friday out there that leaves you confused and shaken and unsure of what just happened, realize there's a Sunday coming. It might not be in three days. But there is a Sunday coming. There's a day coming when every right, every wrong will be righted. When every unknown will be known. When every tear will be dried. When every bit of sadness will be turned into rejoicing. When every feeling of loss will be turned into gain. For every single Friday, I promise you, there's a Sunday coming if we don't allow Friday to change our mind. See, that's what it wants to do, right? It just wants to change your mind. It wants to say, well, if he was, then how come? If he was the Messiah, then how come he's dead? I don't know. But he's still the Messiah. Think about, what, what does it cost the disciples at that point, to just say, you know what, I'm not sure. I don't have an answer for every one of your questions. But he's still who he said he is. He's still going to do what he said he would do. And to just wait and not be changed. And be steadfast and not be moved. And not allow our image of God being destroyed to, to, to shake us 
from who he is and from our belief that he is who he said and he'll do what he said he would do. What does it cost them to just wait faithfully and all of a sudden Sunday comes and everything that they hoped for and everything they expected and everything they had put faith in actually is revealed to be true? Does it cost them anything? What does it cost if we actually allow that to be the thing that makes us give up? What about the people that turned their backs and walked away? I have some good news for them too. I promise I'm ending with this. I read this, I think, I don't know how many years ago. I made one of the first Easter services. I read this line and I read it like I'd never read it before. They stand there in hatred and in anger, and they scream, crucify him, and let his blood be upon us and be upon our children. And what they asked him for in hatred, he gave them in love. In hatred, they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, and in love, he poured out his blood to be upon them and upon their children. He's bigger than your misunderstandings. He's greater than your ability to get everything right. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He's worthy to be trusted, even when we don't understand, even when it's Friday, and we haven't read the book yet to see what Sunday looks like. Father, I just thank you for that. I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that your word God, it's alive and living and active, God. I thank you that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray, God, that it would come and do what you said it would do, that it would separate and divide. God, that it would take that which is not you and divide it from that which is you. And God, I pray for anybody in here right now that's facing a Friday-type situation where they don't understand, where their faith has been rocked, where they, everything they thought and what they put their hope in and their trust in and what this idea that they built of what it would look like for you to come has been completely destroyed. God, I pray that in that place, Father, you would come and strengthen them. For you said that even when we're faithless, that you're faithful. God, that you would send your spirit to come and strengthen us to a place that says, I'm not really sure what happened. I don't have all the answers, but I do believe that he is who he said he is, and I do believe that he will do what he said he would do. And I'm not going to leave on Friday and miss out on what happens on Sunday. Because where else would I go? He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God, and he's the only way to the Father. I thank you for establishing and settling that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.